Hello, friends. It's wonderful to be back with you in this space. And recently, I've been trying to share mostly Israel content, given the current situation in our world. For example, we had Sharon Kaifman on last week, and coming up, have an amazing, amazing episode with a very, very prominent guest in the offing. But I want to take a brief interlude because last week, in mid-November 2023, I had the great honor and privilege of donating a kidney through the organization Renewal, which is a preeminent operation facilitating live donor transplants in the Jewish community. And several years ago, episode number 145, actually, I was able to interview Mendy Reiner, who was the founder of that organization. And this was ages before I ever remotely contemplated something like this. In fact, I didn't even really know it was a possibility. But that initial interview did plant those seeds in my mind. And of course, many, many steps down the road later that were involved to actually convert that into a completed donation. Well, I'm on the road to recovery, on the mend, thank God. My donation was out of town in a different state, but now I'm back home continuing to recuperate and thought it would be appropriate if only as a note of personal connection, personal gratitude as the Thanksgiving season is upon us to re-release my conversation reproduced exactly as it was in its original release date with Renewal founder, Mendy Reiner. This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. I love meeting people like Mendy Reiner, today's guest, who it can be said has literally, directly and indirectly, been responsible for saving so many lives. Through his organization, Renewal, which is not something that he created when he was just starting out his career, he had a successful business career and pivoted in order to be able to take on this life-saving work. Renewal facilitates live kidney transplants in a very transparent and fully sanctioned, medically safe and integrated fashion. And he really came to address a major need in the community, which was a tremendous lack of available kidneys, people languishing for years on dialysis, and sadly passing away from terrible ailments that could potentially be remediated by donation. There was also for many years a very unsafe and extortionist black market that this organization, Renewal, has nearly put out of business. It's very, very exciting work. Renewal also does a tremendous amount of education and outreach, helping people understand what kidney donation is all about, how and why it is safe and a tremendous opportunity for people to be involved with. A reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Send us emails, comments, suggestions, and sponsorships at know at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so forth, and let others know to do so as well. And now, to our conversation with Renewal founder, Mendy Reiner. We are here with Mendy Reiner, founder of Renewal, an incredible organization that has been responsible for saving so many lives. Really excited to have you with us today, Mendy. How are you? 
Baruch Hashem. Hi. Thank you, Rabari. Nice meeting you here. Thank you, thank you, and I'm so happy to have you on. We did have some technical issues getting this going, but nothing more difficult than a kidney transplant. So if you can handle those, I think we can handle this as well. Actually, for me, the technical part is harder than the kidney transplant. <laughs> I guess it all depends on the perspective, uh, where you're coming from, what you're used to. Uh, anyway, Mendy, again, great to have you here. Our listeners can't see you, but you definitely have a very Jewish look. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you're from. And for those less familiar with the community that you are from, give us a little bit of flavor, some color to that very rich Jewish background that you have. Um, so I was born and grew up in Borough Park and still live in Borough Park. Actually, these days I live a bit on the outskirts of Borough Park, which is still considered the the last fourth of uh, Borough Park, because Borough Park has turned a lot more uh, Hasidish than when I grew up in Borough Park. Um, Borough Park, I don't think many of you viewers are not familiar with. Uh, if anything, everybody knows someone or something in Borough Park. And yeah, I love it. And it's a great place to be. And uh, the community is uh, beautiful. Probably one of the largest uh, Jewish uh, communities in the world. And uh, learned in, uh, you know, Spinka Cheder in uh, Borough Park and then traveled to Israel and learned in the Erlo Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And then we uh, learned in Katamon. So going to Spinka Cheder, does that mean your family is Spinka Hasidim? No, 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 no. Spinka Cheder is more of a, at, at least at the time that I went to Spinka Cheder, it was definitely more of a broad general mix. You had Hasidim, you had some Litvisha kids, and from, from all walks of life. Um, now it's a lot more Hasidish just because of the uh, landscaping of Borough Park. But uh, no, Spink is, uh, was a very uh, um, a beautiful mix from all, from all different uh, backgrounds, all different Hasidim, and uh, people who just didn't really belong to any specific Hasidis, but they happened to have been Hasidish. That's the uh, Spink there. And is that your family background as well, more of a generic Hasidic family as opposed to a specific sect? So the background of my family is not Hasidic. My back, the background of my family is uh, Hungarian Oibelander. Uh, you know, it's uh, more of uh, some cipher uh, kind of people. They don't make these people. They lost the mold for that type of people. So either Weissmandel was like the last. Uh... Correct, correct. So the shul where I davened, I davened in the Nitzur Shul in Borough Park. Nitzur Shul in Borough Park. Davened Ashkenaz. We put on Tefillin Chalamoid. It's it's also something that's not in Borough Park. Nearly does not exist anymore. And the kids from our parents uh, in that, you know, from the shul either became Hasidish or they became Litvish and moved to Lakewood. So the Hasidic um, Hevra stayed in Borough Park and the uh, Litvish uh, are in Lakewood. When you hear the Heimish Litvish, that's where it comes from. They- A different dialect of Yiddish. Correct. So now the Overland has this very distinct culture that I believe is not really so much in vogue anymore, not really much around. What can you tell us a little bit about how unique that culture was, what some of its defining qualities were? Very, very tough on sticking to tradition. Mm. In one sentence that I can, I, can, I can put it. I remember in shul, whether it's a minhav, if you should make the mishaberach before the aliyah or after the aliyah, there would be lots of arguments in terms of soira and tradition as to how it's done and how they did it in, how they did it in the past. So very similar to German Jews in that regard. 
Correct. The Khsamsefu was a very strong fighter in terms of, you know, it's keeping keeping to the Masoida. You know, at that, that time there was uh, new uh, waves and uh, whether it's the Neolog, you know, and that's that's basically what trickled down to where we are today. And I learning in Eretz Yisrael, the uh, yeshiva that I learned in is called Oh Shimon Erloi. It's in Katma Yerushalayim. The Erloi Rov was a fifth generation grandchild, Ben Achaben of the Chsamsoifer. And he, he as well is very, very strong and strict to the Chsamsoifer traditions. And uh, so this is where I grew up in. I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in, in history, though. Yeah, just asking from your personal vantage point, I mean, does that style really exist anymore or is it really kind of fizzled out? I mean, it's trickled out, but uh, it, it definitely has new flavor to it. I mean, it's uh, you always get new flavor in different communities, and uh, you get the beauty of uh, the Hasidish community as well. So, you know, if you have um, a nice Hasidish uh, community and uh, it has the flavor, you know, it has the Masoiris uh, of the Hasidish, I mean, you get the best of both worlds. So what do you really love about living in this enclave of Borough Park, on the outskirts at least? And by the way, what's considered uh, the outskirts these days? Well, 60th Street, I don't know if you're familiar with Borough Park, but 60th Street used to be the uh, the wide, I mean, it's still is the wide street, and people would not cross over 60th Street. So at this point, and past 18th Avenue would have been the so-called borders. At this point, people are living as far as 64th, 65th, and 23rd Avenue. And it's more of the younger crowd who didn't end up in Lakewood and don't really uh, belong to any specific Hasidis that they're committed to on a daily basis. And, you know, it's more of a local shtibel community that, not to say, there's a lot of people that belong to different Hasidis, but it's a lot of local activity. Local shuls, local minyanim, local uh, shirim, everything is on, on a local basis. And it's, it's its own little community within a community. Is it just more affordable that the main part of Borough Park is too expensive now? Correct. It's, it's, it's probably 5% cheaper or 10% cheaper than, any, than the housing in Borough Park, but it, became, it, became, it used to be a lot less. But at this point, it's become a community of its own, and uh, it's not that much cheaper anymore. It's interesting. I'm always hearing about how those areas might be shrinking because of expense and the flight to greater space, but you're saying that's not necessarily the case. Yes and no, because we're also, we're, we're, Borough Park is definitely struggling with with the uh, Lakewood uh, phenomenon where people are leaving to Lakewood and as well as Muncie. So, and there it's a lot cheaper. So you're looking at 50% or even more of discounted pricing between Borough Park and Lakewood. Why have you chosen to stick it out? Quite frankly, my parents are here. My in-laws lived here and uh, all of my brothers and sister live in Borough Park. And it just so happened to have been. I mean, Borough Park changed. I mean, I'm, I'm married for close to 25 years. So Borough Park changed over, the, uh, over this time as well. And uh, am I committed to staying in Borough Park? I'm not committed to anything. I mean, Borough Park is uh, it's beautiful for as long as it serves my needs. And if my children end up in uh, Lakewood, you know, Lakewood would be, open, would be open play for me. How about Silver Spring, Mendy? We'd love to welcome you down here. Well, if I if I have to come to Silver Spring, then I think I need to have a Rabonus uh, position. If you have something open, <laughs> we'll see what we can do for you, Mendy. Seriously, kidding on that. Don't even. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't think we quite have the clientele that you would need yet, but maybe you know, Mendy, if you came, I think they might follow. So <laughs> we could see what uh, we could do there. But in any event, 
uh, you spent this time in Israel in Katamon, which is surprising because you don't think of Katamon as an enclave of Oberland or Spinka or any more right-wing type of community. It seems to be more of a modern Orthodox area if you see the show Shrugim and, and things of that nature. What was that experience like and how long did you spend there? So I was there for two years, actually two and a half years. I developed a very close relationship to their Lorov. And actually, the story of renewal ultimately bounces back to my connection to Erloy. When I came back to the States and the Erloy Rov would come to the States for, uh, for any, any visit whatsoever, I basically would close my office and uh, be with him the entire time. And, you know, there's once a time where a uh, gentleman came in to the waiting room and I happened to have been sitting there, and he looked a little drunk. His eyes were swollen, and, uh, you know, his face was, you know, eyes were red, face was swollen, and he was wobbly a bit. And he, and he starts talking to me, and he says, you know, I had a, had a grocery, a supermarket, and I had to give it up. I'm going to have a job. And I have five children. So I took $40 out of my pocket, and I thought, we'll get rid of it. And he's like, younger man, ich darf nicht dein Geld, just heroes. My Misa, you know, I don't need your money. Just listen to my story. And he goes, I'm saying that he's in kidney failure. And he lost his panasa because he's on dialysis three times a week. But this all happened when Erlorov came to visit. He came for a bracha to Erlorov, and I happened to have been there at that time. And I said to him, look, I, you know, and he starts going on that there's costs about $200,000 to buy a kidney on the black market. So I said, look, I don't have that kind of money, but I promise, you know, let me go home. Let me discuss it with my wife and let's see what I can come up with for you. And, you know, we discussed it and we came up with the concept of placing ads in a local paper advertising the need of a kidney. And we placed an ad, father of five, blood type O, needs a kidney. And I put my phone number. And quite frankly, I thought that that would be the end story where I did what I promised. I'll see what I can do. And that's where it ended. And lo and behold, 20 to 30 people called saying that I'm willing to donate a kidney or what does it take to donate a kidney or who are you? Can you help my mother or daughter or friend find the kidney? So I knew that there is a need because I met the need face to face. But I also realized that there is some sort of a possible solution to help those in need. And it was quite a journey because I'm not in the uh, I'm in the real estate or, you know, I did real estate at that time. Now, I was going to ask, what, what was your office? You said you closed your office to meet the rabbi. What was your office when you came back? I did re- real estate development. Commercial or? Commercial. Commercial real estate development mainly. So developing and being going into the trenches with organizations was not my uh, area of expertise. And I really wasn't interested in doing it. So I went from many organizations, one organization to the next, offering the idea that people are going to donate a kidney from placing ads in papers. And I went to pretty big organizations, very well-recognized organizations. And with the best intentions, they showed me the door very quickly. They said, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going to donate a kidney from ads in the paper. Nobody, I mean, it doesn't sound right. Didn't you have proof of concept? I mean, hadn't you shown that somebody, people were calling and, and offering? Yeah, but I wasn't I wasn't that organized either. So I didn't come with uh, spreadsheets and statistics and all kinds of stuff. But I did come and offer that I'll fund the first three years of the costs of 
you know, running this this concept and if it works out, but they really didn't take it. They weren't they really were not interested in taking the 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 idea. And there is a gentleman, I'm not sure if you're if the listeners are familiar with there's a gentleman by the name of Shloyma Meyer. Shloyma Meyer is the uh was very involved in High Lifeline for years. I mean we're talking from the founders of High Lifeline. And I met him and I said, Shloyma, I have this great idea, but I can't seem to find someone who's going to uh, make it happen. And he was like, well, you know, I have a cousin or a nephew. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, what the relationship is. Definitely a family relationship. Um, his name is Sandy Orenstein. Sandy is an accountant by trade, but Sandy has been involved in creating uh, mental health uh, referral organizations. And Shuki Berman is uh, part of his uh, work and... Uh, and there was a uh, home for uh, abused children as well that he was involved. So he's like, speak to him. I'm sure he'll be able to help you. And I reached out to Sandy and Sandy again. Now, the way Sandy says that he was in the car with his wife. And when I called him and he, ha- he says, I hung up the phone. and I told my wife, you hear this crazy guy just called me saying that he wants to start an organization where people are going to donate kidneys from ads in the paper. And he's like, there's no way that this can happen. This guy's nuts. But I was pretty persistent because I really felt it could happen. I really felt that people will do it. And I kept on calling him. He kept on pushing me off that he doesn't have anyone to get involved and he doesn't have the time for it. Probably a a year or two later, he called me saying, you know, all this time that I've been calling him, he calls me and says that he's involved in this organization, DARKA. DARKA was a home for, uh, as I said, abused girls. And the gentleman that's running DARKA is available to uh, have a couple of hours a day to work on this brilliant idea. <laughs> and this is where Chaim Simons came into the picture. Chaim Simons is the, the, still today the director of Renewal. This goes back to 2006. So in 2006, we started Renewal, and December of 2006 was our first transplant. Okay, so I want to stop you there and just go back a drop and understand the landscape of organ donation in general at that time and especially within the religious community because, you know, you say it now, it doesn't sound like such a bizarre idea. Why were people so reticent and and why were they, you know, showing you the door politely or otherwise? Like what was so radical about this concept? There was a couple of uh, misconceptions in our community. Renewal started as a Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox organization, being that we're, that we're in Borough Park, the concept of donating organs, whether it's a live organ donation or a deceased organ donation, cadaveric organ donation, was so controversial with all the misinformation and misinformation that's been going on for years in Israel, people There were major, major uh, fights in Israel where uh, people were accusing the uh, hospital system of harvesting organs of people that were dying and the major fights that were going on. Autopsy controversies and everything, yeah. Correct, autopsies and all that. So the concept of live donation was never even brought to the forefront. At least this is what I think. And transplants was not something that the community was was big at. Not to say no communities at that time were big in live donations. No communities are big today with live organization, live, live kidney donation, except for the ultra-Orthodox community. We're going to get to the statistics of it. Statistics are phenomenal. You're looking at these days, 
roughly 25% of all altruistic transplants in the United States are done out of this office. Oh my gosh. So that, that shows you how little altruistic kidney donations there are in the United States. So you're looking, you're looking at a, a community, let's say at this point we get our kidneys from the Hasidic, modern Orthodox, Litvish communities, but nothing, we, we barely get kidneys from any other communities. I mean, here and there they'll trickle, trickle in, but in general, this is just a uh, Haredi uh, idea or a Haredi concept. We're what, 0.0025% of the population in the United States, but we're doing 25% of all altruistic transplants in the country. And uh, it's a crazy number, and it just proves that with the right amount of education, the right amount of community connection, you can make a change. That, it's a staggering number. I never understood the concept of, you know, politicians always speaking about education and education, how important education is. I don't believe they're saying it because of uh, that they're really interested in making a change, or very few politicians, I believe, are interested in making a change. They're just interested in getting into, into, into office. But the truth is, education is key to many uh, aspects of our lives. And to, to, to prove it, People are walking in, this, this week itself, we're having a handful of transplants. I mean, Monday we had three transplants in a day. It just proves that educating a community at a time, and we do this separately for each community. I mean, Rabbi Sturm is probably out many times in the, during the year, whether it's Shabbatons or during the week, going around all over the country, speaking in different communities, and slowly but surely, the modern Orthodox community is fairly... Uh, Rabbi Sturm as it does the outreach to the modern Orthodox community, and they're pretty much up there with the Hasidic community in terms of donation. You know, you would think, oh, the Hasidim are, you know, if the Rebbe says it's okay, it's done. And the modern Orthodox community is very close to it. And yes, they need more literature and to read up about it. And yes, he knows what each community needs in order to educate themselves about kidney donation. And that happens. In 2006, when you were starting, Somebody was, you know, God forbid, having these struggles. What would they do? What was their choices? What was their pathway? Before renewal, their choices were very limited. They had either, if they had an immediate family member that was a match, which does not happen that often, and they would also need a family member that would be, would be willing to donate. And with the limited amount of education, kidney donation, organ donation sounds very, very scary. So even if the, you had a loving family member that, you know, but they, they weren't, they might have not been willing and able to donate thinking that, you know, they, they, they might not be able to live a normal life after donating a kidney. So that in itself was very um, challenging. Then there, there would be the black market. And the black market was, you'd go out there and pay a broker two, three hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars for a kidney. And I always point out at this point, I don't think there is much of a robust black market for kidneys because this is what renewal has done in the community is to kind of kill that because there is a better options. But let's just go through the black market for a second. If you're a broker trying to make whatever cut you can make off that two, $300,000, your interest is not in getting a good kidney for your customer. Your interest is just to make that transplant happen, whether it's good or not. And unfortunately, many, many people went all over the world, the third world countries, to buy that kidney. 
and they came back to whether it's here or, or to whichever country they were from, and within a week or two or a month or two, that kidney failed because it was not a good kidney. So I always told people, don't touch the black market. I mean, these days you don't even have to say it because I don't think there is a black market to reach out to, or at least not none, none that we know of. But back then I would tell people, don't even waste your time with the black market because it, you, it's only going to hurt you. Stay focused. Let's do, do the renewal program, and that will help you get to where you need to be. How would a black market even function? I mean, you, you show up at a hospital with a box and a kidney like a... You know, it doesn't have to be official through channels with the, med- with the hospital? Correct. There was a case locally where there's a, uh, with, with a robust uh, black market or so, but the hospital sometimes doesn't know that the person donating the kidney is coming out of the other country. They would say, well, you know, we're related. Um, you know, this, uh, this is my sister's wife from uh, the Ukraine or, you know, whatever stories they came up with. And there's only a certain amount of investigation that a hospital can or is willing to do in order to uh, figure that out. Coming to renewal, one of our major strong points are that the donor and recipient don't know each other and they don't meet, meet each other till probably six months post-transplant or at least till after transplant. And this goes on for many reasons. So because, number one, we are a small, smaller community. So if there's a donor, let's say, from where you're, where, where you're coming from and I need a kidney, and the donor is a perfect match to me, and suddenly I know who the donor is, and he's having second thoughts. I have the ability to reach out to the rabbi there or to a friend, you know, please do me a favor, go talk to that recipient, to the donor, and try to convince him to donate a kidney. Like this, there's, we give the donor 100% of his space where he can decide, and we're constantly encouraging him to educate himself to the point where if he wants to walk away at any time, he can and it happens here and there where the donor will come fairly close to transplant and they'll say, you know what, I need more time to think about it. And that's exactly what's honored. You know, go ahead. And there is no, there's no hard feeling from the recipient because he has no clue who he's dealing with. So take me back to 2006. Again, you were kind of pestering these community leaders for a while. And finally, they sort of put you in touch with some activists who could help actualize this vision. Now, what did you actually start to do? Because again, you had made at this point what one, whatever happened to that original guy that that you'd met. The original guy, the name was Ellie Ellie Cohn. Not the familiar Ellie Cohn. Not the and, famous uh, spy. <laughs> not the famous spy, right? But Ellie uh, did not get a kidney in the first couple of years from renewal. He eventually got a kidney through renewal, but unfortunately died a couple of months thereafter from heart failure. And the problem, Ellie was scared to, do this, to, to go through this. As much as he was miserable on the analysis, he was extremely petrified of going through a transplant. We'll discuss Ellie in a minute. But in December of 06, um, a young woman who got a kidney in the black market previously and failed and eventually got a kidney from her father, that kidney failed because the kidney had a life of probably anywhere between 15 to 25 years on average, a live kidney. It's double of a deceased kidney, but it's also eventually the disease that hurt the first kidney eventually catches up with the second. And this young woman came to the States and our first transplant, our kidney donor, Kamal Berger, who for that reason serves on the board of renewal, donated a kidney. And interesting with Kamalta, 
usually transplants are done laparoscopically with minim minimally invasive surgery with just uh, you know three four holes poked in the stomach. For him, he had his ribs were in the way and they needed to cut away. They first did full open surgery, but they also cut one and a half ribs in order to get the kidney out. And they told him two days before transplant that this is the only way that this can happen. And he still went ahead with it. The recovery of that is probably 10 times as hard as the recovery today. And uh, just goes to show Mikam Chisrol of people of stepping up to the plate and doing the unheard of craziest steps in order to uh, save another life. That's the uh, beauty of renewal. And I personally find the beauty of renewal to be where people don't know who they're giving to. It's from a different walk of life. And many of these people, I mean, it's, there's a beautiful story over the years with about 700, little over 700 transplants. You know, you get every story in it of itself is a beautiful story. But the beauty of renewal is where you get people from different walks of life that don't know each other. People that would never sit down to the same table, maybe, and eat your shechita or your hashgacha or or this uh, kashris, or any, you know, davening in this shul, I would never walk into a litvish place, a lechsidish place, and suddenly all of those barriers come down because they, all they see is a human that's struggling and I have something that I can deliver and help that other person live. I'm not sure if I have the uh, facts correctly. It's been a while. But if you remember in 2014, the three boys that were kidnapped in Israel, so... There was a gentleman that called renewal, saying he's looking to willing to looking to wants to donate a kidney, and he's he was like, "How did you hear of renewal?" And he's like, "Look, on my shul there was a sign hanging on the door that they're looking for a local person in Lakewood. He, he lives in Lakewood. He's a retired. He's in his late fifties, and he says the reason he's willing to looking to donate because he spoke to a friend of his that lives in Ramat, Ramat in, in Bechemish. I'm sorry, and he says." that while he was on the phone, the friend started crying that the three boys were found murdered. And he repeats it saying, so I asked this friend of mine in Bechemish, why are you crying? You, know, you knew any of them? And the friend said, I'm shocked that you're even asking such a question that I need to know someone, a, you know, a, a fellow Yid in order to cry for the pain of, of the three, three lost souls. And he hung up the phone with that friend and he said, my Ahavas Yisrael is missing. I want to fix my Ahavas Yisrael. And he called Renewal saying that I want to donate a kidney. So that person we told him we found the kidney for. But there's another person living in a different community, let's, so to speak. He's not from that's looking for a kidney. And he was like, uh, I don't know. Then he says, one minute, the reason I'm calling is because I need to fix my Ahavas Yisrael. I don't care who that person is, and I want to donate to the person to to overcome my the missing part. And he went ahead and he was and donated a kidney to a, this person that would never ever cross his path. And I I find that that's the beauty of renewal. I don't I don't know where you grew up, but where my parents would literally cry when there was a painful story, no matter where in the world. If there was a painful story, they would feel it, and we would feel it at home. And I feel as we grew up, it became more commercialized. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot more pain out there. There's a lot of pain out there. And it brings back beautiful memories to me where we are still one small family. 
So how did this thing start to grow? You started reaching out to the community, putting ads in the paper. What, what did you do? Correct. So basically, we went, went ahead with those model that we had, ads in the paper, people reached out, and we started with one hospital, Montefiore Medical Center. And uh, the first year, we did one transplant, obviously. The transplant was December of 06. But the following year, we did a handful of transplants. And the year thereafter was 12 transplants. And as we moved along, at this point, like 2020 is not going to be the greatest year just because transplant centers were closed for six months. But we're, we're on target for about 120, 130 transplants. And this is, this is all, we, obviously, we're not that much in uh, placing ads and papers. We're more into asking recipients to uh, open doors for us. So we create the evenings where they, they'll bring friends and family together and we'll explain the process. Or we'll do community drives where 100, 200 people this week, Thursday, we have a, commu- a kidney drive in Monroe. Probably going to net at least 150 to 200 people are going to test in order to uh, see if they're a potential match. In Lakewood, the last couple of weeks, we had two, three drives where we netted probably 300 swaps where people swapped to see if they're, you know, to figure out their blood types and the HLA. So it moved in a, in a big, in a different way. It's not so much that renewal finds kidneys for people. Renewal helps you educate your community. Renewal helps you educate your friends and family. And we take it from there. We, we make sure that the recipient and the donor, the, the recipient does not know which family member or any family member or if at all. And many times it works out that we have a kidney that matches that particular recipient. And the kidney that's coming from this particular drive for that particular recipient doesn't even come to this recipient. It ends up going to someone else or a different, different community. So speaking of education, give me kind of like a, uh, a basic primer on why does somebody need a kidney? What's the circumstances? How common is it? What are the shortages? There are millions of people in kidney, living kidney failure in the United States. There's probably four or 500,000 people living in dialysis. There's about 100,000 people on the waiting list for transplant. And the national average is about seven years for a kidney. Just so you understand the statistics of the life expectancy of people on dialysis, 25% of people on dialysis die each year. 60% are no longer alive after three years. And 80% are no longer alive after 10 years. So it's a, it is a slow and painful death. The dialysis only does roughly 15% of what a healthy kidney does. So it's not like dialysis is, is, is a solution. Dialysis is only a temporary hold if we can get to the uh, transplant early enough before the person gets sick, just like going back to Ellie Cohn, Ellie waited way too long and he lost heart function. So by the time he went to transplant, one hospital was not, was not interested in transplanting him because they felt that his heart is uh, no longer viable and they weren't comfortable doing the transplant. And another hospital felt that the hospital that ultimately transplanted him, that with a new kidney, his heart function might go back from 30 to 50%, and that'll, with proper intervention, will be able to survive. But obviously, unfortunately, it didn't survive. So the sooner someone is transplanted, these days we're getting a lot of people that the day their doctor tells them that you're in kidney failure, they start the process, 
they understand the process. And that's pretty much very important because doctors, I don't, we find they're not giving the people the uh, proper education in terms of getting to transplant. They'll tell them you're in kidney failure. They don't have the uh, resources to walk them through the process or tell them what it is. Yeah, you don't need a kidney yet. And most people, that's what they want to hear, that they don't need it yet. It's down the line. And when you wait till down the line, you're on dialysis. So the best thing is for a person to start the process as soon as possible. And this is all where education and renewal comes in. Where The more people know about renewal, that the quicker they'll reach out to renewal, the quicker they'll get transplanted. The sooner you start rolling the ball, the sooner the game is over. So what are the things that people need to know about prospectively becoming a donor? Obviously, people, I'm sure, are concerned about safety and and their own long-term medical prognosis and what the process is like, what the recovery is like. How does that all work? Just so you understand, it's, it's a fairly very, very safe procedure. The mortality rate is 3 in 10,000. So just so the listeners can put things in perspective, the mortality rate for a hernia surgery is about 1 in 2,500. Because ultimately, it, kidney, kidney donation is taken from a very, very healthy pool of people. And people that have a hernia repair might not be perfectly healthy. They might have other issues, but they're still doing the surgery. So that in itself. But the safety, safety-wise, when, when someone comes to shul tomorrow and tells you that he's having a hernia repair that day, you'll say, okay, you know, I'll say a, I'll say a capital film for you, and I'll see you there in the next, at, at the end of the week. It's not something that we uh, kind of go crazy over. Kidney donation is more is, is an extremely safe procedure. The donor goes through vigorous tests, uh, v- very rigorous tests. With their own, the donor has its own uh, team at the transplant center that advocates for the donor's health. So obviously, the donor recipients are separate, and they have their own uh, advocacy. And uh, it's more or less a swap to find out if you're a match. That's something that we do in house. And we can figure that out probably to 95, 97% accuracy. There's a full day of testing. In the past, before renewal, it would have been a four or five day process where you'd come in one day to meet the social worker and then they'd make you come back to meet the doctor and then they'd make you come back for a EKG and a uh, some blood work and the following day they'd make you come back for a sonogram. It used to be a four day spiel and it's very hard for someone that's, that has a job or other commitments to come back and forth this many times. But with renewal, we kind of worked out with most centers that we work with that they squeeze all of it into one day. So the donor basically knows within a day, a one day of work, one day of testing, or maybe one and a half day worth of testing, whether he can go forward or not. And the actual procedure is probably a two-hour surgery for the donor. It's a day to two days in the hospital. And probably, I would say, on the easier side, for those that recover easier, it's probably five days for recovery, five to seven days recovery. And there are people that go out as much as six to eight weeks, depending also what type of work they do. If a person has a desk job and they don't do much physical work, it's a quicker recovery. And for the people that do physical work, it's a longer, longer recovery. In terms of life changes, there isn't much life changes that happen. They don't want you to do contact sports, motorcycles, and 
any of those things that you're prone to injuring your kidney that's left with you. And it's also important to know that one in 800 people are born with only one kidney. And they go through life many times not knowing that they have one kidney unless they're looking to donate a kidney and then they find out. We've had that cases once in a while we bump into those uh, that have only one kidney. So the long-term medical prognosis for the donor, it doesn't alter life expectancy? It's very interesting, but again, it's a bit of a cheat, but it's a fun fact. Kidney donors statistically live longer than the uh, average population. Now, if you ask a chesidah he'll say, you know, listen, the guy who gives life deserves a little uh, extra bonus. But statistically, they're taking it from a very healthy group full of people. So they take a kidney from a 40, 50-year-old, 60-year-old that's healthy. Obviously, that group is going to live longer. Um, your blood pressure probably goes up with 5% post-transplant, but these are all within safe and extremely safe guidelines. They want you to stay away from uh, from Advil for so those that are uh, need the Advil to stay uh, sane. Uh, shouldn't be donating. And what's beautiful is we created a whole new group of people that are just, I don't even know what to call them. It's it, Heroes is an understatement. And, you know, we, we do events here and there where we bring hundreds of kidney donors in the same room. If I need someone to say to him for either myself or any, uh, any emergencies that I, I mean, that's the group of people who I want to do the shtadlonas for me. To go out there and uh, and and pray for us. It's it's just beautiful for someone. We we know the Akeda. Rabbi Yuman Eisenberg once told Hamal Berger, the morning of surgery, he says, "Say the Parshas Akeda," because he doesn't see anything else that comes close to it, like kidney donation, like organ donation. So no contact sports, though, for someone who's had it, but otherwise. Otherwise, they're gone more very, and there was also a misconception without within our community whether women can have children. So all of those, all of those things, where you had no one to ask that question, you you, you didn't even put kidney donation on the on the radar because it, you know you probably can't have children, which is totally not true. But here you have the resources to ask the questions, find out if it's for you, and donate. And and also you had a lot of family opposition. Before renewal, you know, if a child came and, if, you know, told, told the parents that they're looking to donate, the parents would be adamantly against it. At this point, it's something that happens a lot. Everybody knows someone that donated a kidney, and they've seen them, they're seeing them in shul. It's become an accepted thing to happen. And that in and of itself creates the ease where family members don't go ballistic if, if a close relative is looking to donate, and it's respected. Medically, do they have theories as to why we have this extra kidney? Like, why would we need two kidneys? I don't have the answer, but there was a question posed to Rukhaim Knievsky about it. And he said, look, probably to give one away. For chesed purposes. Yeah. I'm going to just finish with a very personal story Running an organization, you have many, many stories, and every story in and of itself is a very uh, beautiful story. And, uh, you know, most of the times it's taking a person from pain to life. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that I'm able to have, the, that I have this host to be involved in this organization. 
there was a young woman from Yerushalayim. Her name is Molly Pump. Molly is 27 years old. She had a seven-year-old girl at the time. She was in kidney failure ever since she gave birth to her daughter. And then she was on dialysis. She met our first recipient at Hadassah in the dialysis ward. That recipient came around, the original recipient, the first recipient from Renewal, came around to Hadassah to always meet people on the machine and give them chizik. This Molly was on the machine for eight months there. And Molly says, I don't have a donor. My husband is, a, is not a match. He's willing to donate to me, but he's not a match. And she's like, and in Israel at that time, the system was broken. It's still not perfect, but we started, I don't know if you're familiar, I was very involved with Rabbi Haber in Israel with, from Adnas Chaim to help him copy the model of I heard about his thing. He was, wasn't he arrested and there was a whole scandal over there? Correct. And uh, he was eventually uh, released and charges were dropped. And his organization there made a major dent in the kidney shortage in the country. So I was very involved with him when he set up the organization. So, but at that time, there was no, there was no Matnas Chaim in Israel either. So this woman tells Mali, call Renewal because they might be able to help you. She called Renewal. She set herself up. She sent in her blood work and, and, all, and everything else. Eight weeks after she arrived to New York, she was transplanted. And she got her kidney from a roofer, someone who worked for a roofer in Borough Park, Fishy Carmel. These people never met them. Fishy actually never wanted to meet her. His condition was that he, he doesn't want to meet her. So Molly, the last day of dialysis, I went to visit her here locally in, in Brooklyn, and she was penning a letter to her donor while she was on the machine, and she addressed it to my angel. And she writes how her life has been affected from, uh, with, with dialysis and how miserable life is on dialysis and how she so much looks forward to uh, life once she gets her, her gift. And the last line of that letter, she writes, maybe with this gift that you'll give me, I'll be able to answer my daughter's request every single Friday night when I light candles to bring her brother or sister. And I gave it to Fishy the morning of transplant at Columbia Presbyterian. And as he's reading it, the Sadiq was crying reading that letter. But he still had no interest in meeting her, and we kept the two of them very, very separate. Now, while she was recovering, Molly, by the way, stayed in my house all this time. So after she finished surgery, the surgery was perm time, and as we're going into uh, Pesach, she needed to stay here for all this time to continue uh, follow-up visits with the doctor. And I walk into the house once, and she's climbing on my kitchen cabinets, cleaning for Pesach. And I'm like, Molly, we have cleaning help. What are you doing? She tells me, Mendy, you don't understand. Ichleib, I'm alive. You don't understand it. So the seven-year-old, we called her Pampala, her, her daughter. I'm on the board of Beis Yaakov of Borough Park. So Pampala got into Beis Yaakov all this time that she did. She was there in first grade. And every morning, you know, uh, you know the, the ones that are have little kids at home are pretty familiar with this. You chase the kids out. You get the bus by the skin of our teeth. And I'm getting my kids, and Pump, Molly is getting Pampala out the door. And Pampala is running out with her coat, not wearing her coat. And Molly yells to Pampala, Pampala, she also started calling her Pampala, Pampala, you're not cold, it's not cold. 
And the seven-year-old turns to her mother. I'm watching this in front of her as she's running off to the bus. As long as my mother is healthy, I'm warm. And off like that, she ran to the bus. And I turned around and I said, it's not only the recipient that changes the life of a recipient. The seven-year-old kid realizes that there is a whole life ahead. And Baruch Hashem, Molly went back home. Pumpel has a new sister and a new brother. And Mikam uh, Chisrol Renewal. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, and I'm glad that I'm able to be part of it. And I thank you for uh, showing interest in our wonderful work. Thank you so much. Mendy, where can people learn more about Renewal and they want to donate either financially or a kidney <laughs> or whatever it might be? You can find us a lot of information at renewal.org. Do you have two donate buttons in your case? Or <laughs> you know, they say, Raf Palm once said, had a uh, blood transfusion. So he says, now he understands what we say. We always understood it. It's a financial um, gift. But he says, now I understand that Matnas Bosavadam is literally flesh and blood. And Hashem should help. We should all only be on the giving side and never need to be on the receiving end, both financially and flesh and blood. Amen. Mendy Reiner, founder of Renewal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rabari. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.